We are in Colossians 3, starting with verse 18. Uh, We're in this series about the preeminence of Christ, and last week we talked about uh, putting on the virtues of Jesus. The week before was about killing the sin that is in us. Those are both ongoing struggles. We're going to be working on that our whole lives. In the same way, the, the priority to make Jesus number one in your personal life, and for us as a church, to make sure Jesus is king of everything we do, that's not something we just sit down and decide one day. That's something we have to continually fight, continually work on. We will always be striving to make him more preeminent. And if we, if we want to live right, we will. Uh, but today, we're going to see how that works out in our most important relationships. So kind of a painful story that I'm going to start with. I, when I was in my seminary days, there was this guy, I'll call him Rick, um, who was... Uh, about 10 or 15 years older than most of us young preacher boys, so that would have put him in his mid-30s, mid to late 30s, so old man, right? Um, Rick was just the greatest guy. We all loved him. He was friendly. He was out, you know, an extreme extrovert, very funny. One of those guys that you would say, oh yeah, Rick, he'll do anything for you. He will, he will take the shirt off his back if that's what you need. One day we got to school, to class, and the word had spread quickly that Rick's wife had left him and he had dropped out of school to try to go back home where she had moved back to the state where they were from and to try to patch things up. Now, none of us in my little friend group had ever met Rick's wife, but we were sitting there talking about her as if we knew her, as if we had her completely figured out that she was just some daddy's girl that, you know, Rick had had a job before he went off to seminary to study for the ministry and that she must have missed being able to have a certain level of lifestyle and that's why she left. She went home to mom and dad so she could, you know, live in the lap of luxury again. And there was a guy standing near us, I'll call him Kyle, we knew him too, uh, but he was close friends with Rick and his wife and he came over and he said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And we just sort of looked at him and he said, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I'm glad she left. I'm not saying she was right to leave. I'm not saying that I want them to get divorced. He said, you just don't know, unless you knew them better, you wouldn't know what you're talking about. You don't understand that Rick is, the person you know here is not the way he is at home. Again, not making excuses, but what you see here is not the way he treated her. We were stunned. Because we just assumed he's a great guy here, he's a great guy there. What we need to understand is we need to see into our own hearts and see our own ability to put on a face at church, to put on a mask when we're out there with our friends and we want to be seen in a certain way, and then in our most important relationships to be a completely different person. And that's who we really are. That's what I want you to know right off the start. The way you are in these key relationships that Paul is about to talk about, husband-wife, parent-child, boss-employee, that's who you truly are. If Jesus is king, there is a way that you're going to live in those relationships, and that's what Paul talks about here. In Colossians 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So three different relationships that Paul addresses. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5 where he talks about the same three relationships you can compare and contrast. So he's saying mostly the same things with some more details here and there. But the first one here is husbands and wives. And, and the first thing I need to do is dispel some myths about what the Bible teaches on this. Because as 21st century people, when we read this passage, when we read Ephesians 5, the word that stands out to us is the word submit. And we think, oh, that's really controversial. That's really inflammatory. How could he say that? And the irony is that when Paul was writing Colossians and Ephesians, that wasn't controversial at all. The idea that, that a, a wife would submit in her marriage, was that was just accepted. The idea that a husband would love his wife was controversial. I know that surprises you. We just, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how much the, the movement started by Jesus changed our world. And one of the ways it changed the world is the idea of what a man owes to a woman. Before that, women were seen as property. Now, it, within the Jewish culture, they were treated better, certainly, because of, of the, the ethic, the Jewish ethic, but Jesus came along and went even further. In Rome and in wider Roman culture, a woman had no rights. And suddenly here comes Jesus, and he treats women as equals. And here comes Paul, and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There is no higher bar than that. That doesn't mean you send her flowers, once a, once a month, that means that in everything you do, your goal is to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to make sure she is loved, she is cared for, she is protected, she is your priority. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 and says it's your job uh, as Jesus loved the church and is trying to craft the church into something beautiful. It's a husband's job to help his wife become something wonderful, to become all that she was created to be in Jesus. See, there's this old saying, some of you who are young may not have heard this because it's, it's kind of passe, but they used to say, behind every great man is a supportive wife and a surprised mother-in-law. Um, but there's this idea that, oh, well, you know, you marry a woman to sort of make you complete, but that's not the case. Her job is not just to prop you up. She has her own purpose in life, created by God for a specific purpose. She is a daughter of the king, and therefore your job as a husband is to help her achieve that purpose and to be all she can be in Christ. That's what it means to be a good husband. Now, that's controversial even today. But submission, what does it mean? Let's talk about wives. Now, three myths that I want to address. First is the myth that says submission means obedience. Believe it or not, those of you who are younger than me, the wedding vows for the bride used to say honor and obey. They don't say that anymore, and I'm glad because, frankly, that's not what submission means. Can I be honest? I'm married, I love my wife, but I would love it if it meant obedience because then I'd have the perfect trump card, right? I could always win every argument, and that's not the case. Notice in these three relationships, obedience is mentioned with 
children and parents. Obedience is mentioned with bosses and employees, but not here. I'll tell you something else. Uh, number two, myth number two, a Christian husband must claim headship in the home. That's kind of the rhetoric you get from certain church circles. Come on, men, claim your headship. We're never, guys, you listen to me? Never anywhere in the Bible are we commanded, you claim your headship of your home. You go make that woman submit. You go, you go take that uppity woman and put her in her place. Never does the Bible say that. If you're a, a husband here today and you say, well, my wife is just, she is, she's against me and everything and I can't make her submit to our relationship. Well, your job is to love her. She'll answer to God for what she did and how she treated you. You can't control that. All you can do is love the one God has given you. And by the way, headship does not mean privilege. You understand that. Jesus did not, did not, he, was, he is head of the church, but he never forces us to do anything. He does not lord his lordship, his, his lordship over us. Yeah, that's the word I'm trying to say. So men, if we ever use the Bible or shame and guilt or our advantage in physical strength to get our way, we need to repent before God. That is not what being head means. Headship is not privilege, it's responsibility. Me as head of the house means that Ultimately, I'm going to stand before the Lord someday and give an accounting to him. Did I protect my home? Did I love my wife and kids? Did I treat them the way that I should? Did I put them ahead of myself? Did I do everything that I could to make it likely that they would choose to follow you? That's what it means to be head. It ought to, it ought to, make you, it ought to fill you with a sense of responsibility, not with a sense of privilege. Okay, number three, this teaching enables domestic abuse. Yes, that has happened, but only in churches where Jesus isn't preeminent. Because where Jesus is preeminent, those who are wounded, those who are hurt, those who are abused, they are the priority because that was Jesus' priority in everything that he did. He always took the side of the one who was in pain, the one who was the victim. So anytime a church tries to defend abuse of any kind, that church is running smack into the will of God and they'll answer for it. So what is biblical submission then, if it's none of those things? There's a couple of other times when submission is mentioned in Bible that I want to bring up to you. First, Jesus the Son submitted to God the Father. Even though we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus himself was God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three forms. There's no inferiority or superiority. There's no ranking. It's just Jesus said, I submit to this relationship. This is more important than me. And then in Ephesians 5.21, right before Paul starts talking to husbands and wives and children and, and parents and bosses and employees, in Ephesians 5.21, he says, you can look it up, submit to one another in everything. So he's saying, before I get into this whole thing about relationships, let me just give you the principle that should govern all your relationships, mutual submission. So what do I mean by submit? I think what the Bible means when it says submit is put we ahead of me. Our relationship is more important than what I want out of our relationship. You see, I may have hopes and dreams and aspirations, but those are all set aside for the sake of us. That's what submission means. The way it's supposed to work, uh, I think a parallel verse is Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. 
the way it's supposed to work. Here's a, here's a Christian husband who is not perfect, cannot meet his wife's needs completely. Only Jesus can do that. But what he does is consistently show her by sacrifice, by acts of service, by words of affirmation or whatever speaks to her heart, I love you. And she says, well, you're not going to outdo me. I'm going to show you more honor than you show me. And she submits in every way to that relationship. And she does not try to use him to get what she wants. Ladies, I'm sorry. I, I love you. You're great. I don't know how you put up with us, but I have to say something. It is the Holy Spirit's job to change a man, and you stink at being the Holy Spirit. So love the man you have, not the man you wish he was. That's submission. That's what we're talking about. Now listen. You may say, well, then why, if, if it's something that we're all supposed to do in all our relationships, why does he specifically single out wives here and in Ephesians? You have to consider what was going on in society when this was being written. Because you had a culture, again, where women were told they were nothing except vessels for childbearing. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus and says, no, 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 you're a daughter of the king. You have a, a unique purpose that God created you for, and, and, and you are precious in my sight. And in me, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Jew nor Gentile. And there were probably some Christian women who said, well, I've been yoked to this stubborn, mean-spirited man for all these years, and he's not even a Christian. So therefore, if I want to serve Jesus, I should probably just leave him behind and go my own way. And so Paul writes to say, that's not what this is about. If you love Jesus, then that ought to make you submit even more to your relationship to this man. You ought to be an even better wife than you were before you came to know me. That's what this is about. Now, guys, I know. I know marriage is hard. And that's true of the best marriages you'll see. Even the best marriages in this room, whoever they are, they've been through some rocky times. You know, Carrie's here in this service. She could get up and testify, but she won't. Um, we've been through things, okay? We've been through things. So I know. And I, I know there are people in this room that are struggling to stay together. And I don't know the half of it, right? We as a church offer opportunities to strengthen marriage. Life group is important. Being part of a community is important. We've got a re-engage group that's meeting on Wednesday nights that's doing incredible things as, as couples are gathering around a table with a mentor couple in the middle. Uh, if you want to be a part of that the next time it comes around, talk to Alan or talk to Joe and Denise DeGear as they're leading that ministry. Uh, we have a, a, a biblical counselor on, on staff and we will help pay the fees if you need to see him. There are other biblical counselors all across our county and our city and I urge you, don't wait until your bags are packed and you've got one foot out the door. Get counseling when you see struggles between you. All those things are important, but if Jesus isn't preeminent in your heart, none of that stuff will work. If you go into it saying, well, okay, let's go meet with this counselor and, and he'll straighten you out, that never works. But if instead Jesus is king and you're, you come to it with the approach that says, I know I've got some changing to do too, and that's what I can control, that's when good things start to happen. Second relationship, children and parents. Man, I've been waiting for this third service. There's two reasons why kids should obey their parents, according to Scripture. The first one we find back in, his, in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment. Y'all can probably quote, 
honor your father and mother. It's the only one with a promise. The promise is so that you'll have a long life, right? It's not exactly what it says. First of all, the you, when it says, so that you will live long in the, nation, in the, in the land the Lord is giving you, the you, as I've said many times before, is actually y'all. We just need more people from the South to become Bible translators because, I'm not kidding, because so many of the you's, Y-O-U, second person uh, addresses in scripture are actually plural. And people from up north don't have that plural in their language. So what Moses is actually saying is, if you obey your if you honor your father and mother, y'all will have a long life. He's not saying that if you're a good kid, you'll grow to be 110. He's saying, Israel, you're starting a new nation. If you found your nation on principles like kids obey their parents, and when they grow up, they honor their father and mother as long as their father and mother live, then that is a society that will last so that y'all will live long in the land your father is giving you. So literally, when we honor our parents, we're not just blessing them, we're blessing America. We're making our society stronger, our culture stronger. But the second reason we should obey is because it pleases the Lord. All right, students, I love y'all. I do, but I have to say this. You can be the perfect youth group kid. You can come to church every Sunday. You can invite your friends. You can lift your hands in worship. You can ask questions from Michael on Wednesday nights and, and sit and listen to his responses. You can take notes when I preach. You can volunteer for mission trips. But if your parents can't sleep at night because of the way you're acting, if you roll your eyes when they talk to you, if you speak to them disrespectfully, then you are not right with God. And... I don't know. I don't know anybody this fits, but I'm sure it fits some of you. Some of you probably need to go home and apologize today. I'm just saying, let the Holy Spirit guide you in that. All right, parents, we are not off the hook. Parents, it says, first of all, let's say what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, parents, keep control of your kids. How many of us parent out of fear that, uh, of what others think? I can't let him get away with that, not because it's bad for him, but because my friends at church might judge me or, or the, the, the parents at my kid's school or the parents that I homeschool with, they might judge me because my, my daughter has purple hair or my son does this or that. That's no way to parent. It also, please hear me, it doesn't say, parents, protect your kids from the evil world out there. I know that's part of our job, to, to wisely try to help decide when our kids encounter certain thoughts and certain ideas and, and certain values. And, and so I, I commend you if you're one of those parents that you know, my son's the last one that's going to have a, a smartphone. My, my daughter's not going to take her laptop into her bedroom. And, and, you know, you're not going to that party. And no, you can't hang out with that kid. And no, I don't know that kid's parents, so you can't spend the night there yet. That's all fine. That's all part of being a parent. But if we're parenting out of fear instead of out of love, if our whole message is the world is evil and you just need to stay close to me and people just like me because everybody out there is bad, that's how we end up having Christian kids grow up and deconstruct their faith. Because what happens is that kid grows up and he leaves home and suddenly he's got an atheist boss or a Muslim neighbor or, or a gay coworker, and he realizes, oh, well, 
These people don't actually want to steal children and suck their blood. They're just trying to make their way through life like everybody else. And my parents lied to me. They made me think that everybody out there was evil and they're not. So what else did they lie to me about? Instead of teaching us, teaching our kids to fear non-Christians, we should teach them to love non-Christians, to react, re relate to them like Jesus did. In fact, not just teach them verbally, but our kids ought to see us interacting with the world, ought to see how we interact with our atheist boss and our Muslim neighbor and, and, and the, the transgender person down the street, ought to see how we're able to live by biblical principles while still showing love and grace. See, it's not about that. Paul's got one thing to say to parents, and it's not about guarding them against the world. It, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does it mean, do not provoke? Some translations say do not exasperate, which does not mean do not make them angry because you cannot parent your kids and do a good job without making them angry sometimes. Can I get an amen? I don't ever say that, but there you go. Um, what it means is don't put them in a position where they feel like they can never please you. Your kids should never have this idea, you know, nothing I do can ever make my, my dad happy or make my mom pleased with me. That's exasperation. That's provoking and making them discouraged. What it comes down to is love your kids more than you love your dreams for them. And that's hard. But we have to do it. So here's a pretty simple uh, example. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, I loved sports. I was never very good, but I played every sport my kids would, would my, my parents would let me play. Uh, and, and sports were what, how my dad and I bonded. We would watch games, we would go to games. But my son, Will, he doesn't care about sports. That's not his thing. We have to bond over other things. And that's fine. It took me a long time to realize that. Oh, oh okay, I guess he's never gonna like sports the way I do. And that's okay. See, if instead I say, no, 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 my relationship with you is going to be just like my relationship with my dad, and you are going to play this sport and this sport and this sport, and you are going to go to this game, and you are going to sit down and watch this game with me, even though you don't care anything about it, I'd make him miserable, and I would miss the great young man he is. And all of us as parents have those things in our heads that when, when our kids were born, we're like, okay, I know how it's going to go. No, actually, your kids were created uniquely by God, and they're not just like you. And they're going to surprise you at times. So part of do not provoke your kids is loving the kid they are instead of your dream for them. But it goes deeper than that because... Many of us, many very, very good families will end up having a kid or two that goes off the rails. And, and possibly there are some of you in this room that are experiencing this right now where your child has left the path of righteousness, has perhaps reject, rejected your faith or is involved in criminal activity or in dangerous stuff or is, is doing things, making decisions that the Bible says are wrong embracing unbiblical lifestyles, and what can we do? They've gotten too big for us to control. We can't make their decisions for them anymore. How do we handle this? I think the principle of do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged tells us the answer. Your job is to love your kids with the love, the love of Jesus. That's all you have. 
That's all you can offer that the, the world can't offer. The world can offer them acceptance. The world can offer them affirmation for their choices, but it can't love them like Jesus loves. You can. And we know, we know somewhere down the road, the, the broad road that leads to destruction, we know at some point in, in all these decisions they're making, they're going to unravel at some point. And who are they going to turn to on that day to put everything back together. If you're the parent who all along has been disapproving and, and telling them how upset and disappointed you are, it might not be you. But if you're the parent that all along has been saying, listen, whatever you do, doesn't matter, I still love you. You're still my child and I will love you till the day I die. You've got a good shot. You're the one. You'll get that opportunity to help them put things back together. Don't provoke your kids, lest they become discouraged. Third and finally, slaves and masters. Now, I am aware, because I, I do like history, I am aware of our nation's history. I know that there was a time in churches just like this one, although this church didn't exist back then, but in churches built on the same model as this one, there were actually slave owners who would take the Bible and take verses like verse 22 and say, aha, see, God approves of me owning slaves. And that is not true. And that is an evil teaching from the pit of hell. And I can make the case that in contrast, the Bible is actually the most effective anti-slavery pro-equality book ever written. And if you need for me to make that case, if you're like, I'm not convinced, Jeff, email me this week and I will lay out my arguments. But I'm not going to do that right now because because we've been here 25 minutes. So I still need to tell you what Paul's actually saying here. Paul is talking to the 40% of the population of the Roman Empire that were slaves. We have no idea how big slavery was in Rome. In Rome, everything you did, you were probably working alongside people who were enslaved. They were your accountants. They, were the, they ran the business that you traded with. They did work in the homes of wealthy people. They worked in the fields. They did everything. And so if Paul was speaking today, making the same points, he would speak to bosses and employees, not to slaves and masters. So what does he say? He says the best way to represent Christ at work is to work hard. The best way to be a good Christian employee is to be a good employee, to do your job, to do it well, to have a good attitude, to, to be a blessing to your company. There was a, a Christian airline pilot I heard about who went to his pastor and said, I, I really convicted of the need to, uh, to live out my faith at work. How do I do that? And his pastor said, well, um, step number one, land the plane safely and on time. He said, what? What? And the pastor said, well, sure, I, I want you to pray for your coworkers and be compassionate to those who are hurting and, and, and witness when you can and invite people to church. But if you don't land the plane safely, then none of that other stuff matters. And I'm here to tell you, friends, we can try to be as Christian as we want to on the job, and I hope we do. But if we're lousy employees, it won't have any impact. Work hard. Be a good employee. But my boss is a jerk. You don't understand. He's evil. My, my workplace is toxic. It's a terrible place to work. Okay, that's what verse 24 is about. It says, you are serving the Lord Christ. 
So if your boss is a terrible person, it's a good thing you don't actually work for him. If your workplace, your company that you, that you work for is, is a lousy company, well, it's a good thing they don't actually call the shots. See, the, the great thing about being a Christian is if you have the most evil boss in the world, everything you do, you're actually working for Jesus, and that's an act of worship, so you can begin to find significance and even the most, the most mundane and, and, and disreputable, di disgusting acts you have to do, and it brings dignity to that, and as a bonus, Jesus makes them pay you. So you're serving Jesus and getting paid for it. Meanwhile, it says you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. God sees and says, okay, you know, Jeff, Jeff Berger's Pastor First Baptist Conroe. He loves his job, but this person over here is in a terrible job. It's a struggle just to get to work every day. Who do you think God's going to reward more for doing a good job? Think about that. Well, then why is there only one verse for bosses? I mean, I've got all these, all these verses for me as an employee. Why is there only one for bosses? Well, I think, first of all, because there were a lot more slaves in the early church than there were masters. But more importantly, what more does God have to say than this sentence? Remember, you have a master in heaven. Do you want to be treated by God the way you've treated your employees? Because that's what's going to happen. You have a master in heaven. And every one of those employees is a child of him. Now, there are people in this room who are in positions of management. You have people that report to you. And I know, trust me, I know, you can't always be nice. Sometimes you have to be firm. I understand that. Sometimes you have to do things that are hard. But always, you have to say, this is a child of God. I have to treat them like a child of God. I have to be gracious. I have to be kind. I have to be right. I have to be fair. To live this way means that even the employees who you have to have hard words for sometimes, you have to discipline, maybe even fire, on the day of judgment should be able to say, well, that man made me more, that woman made me more likely to become a believer in Jesus, not less. And for those of you that say, well, okay, that'll never be my problem because I'll never be the boss of anything. When you leave this place and you go out to eat, somebody's going to bring you your food. When you go get your hair cut later on, the shears don't work themselves. When, when you go to the doctor, there's going to be someone there to take your vitals. When you send your kids off to school, there's going to be someone there to teach them each subject. All of those people and more work for you in some sense. For at least a moment in time, you are their boss, and the way you treat them is something you'll have to answer to God for. See, never, never let it be said in Montgomery County that the worst time to work at a restaurant is Sunday afternoon because those church people are the worst. And yet some of you who've worked in food service can say, yeah, that's the way it is. That's what we have to correct is the reputation of previous generations of Christians. And we have to show the world, no, this is what Jesus is. This is who he is and what he stands for. So I don't know. Listen, I promise I didn't have any single person in mind when I prepared this message. This is Colossians. This is not me. 
So if anybody here thinks that I'm picking on them, I'm not. That's the Holy Spirit. And I don't know who he's speaking to or how, but because last time I checked, this is still a room full of sinners, my guess is that every one of us can see one of these relationships where we should be doing more or we should be acting differently. So what do we do? We don't try harder because that never works. We go to Jesus and we say, I'm failing, Lord, and I need your help. Change me. Because, and I want you to do that today. Whether you do that publicly and tell me about it or right there in your pews while we're singing or, or, or in some quiet moment later, don't go to sleep tonight without addressing this before the Lord. Because remember, Jesus is the one who submitted himself to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and then went to the cross for our sins. He's the bridegroom who gave his life for us, his bride. He's the child who obeyed his father, and he's the father who loves us no matter what. He's the king who willingly became a slave to save us, and he is the master who always treats us better than we could ever deserve. 